0: so so precious hey guys i'm actually not going to be the one teaching the bible tonight i mentioned it earlier that we've got a special friend here tonight and he's going to join us for the whole weekend we trust him we're excited for what he's going to share with us he comes actually from iowa ooh interesting hey i want to welcome to the stage stephen jones make some noise for stephen jones how about come on Hey, this guy is going to give us the word tonight, tomorrow, again tomorrow, and then on Sunday morning, and we are very, very excited about it. I just want to to know that one of the reasons that we're excited for Steven being here this weekend is because he's actually going to become a permanent resident in Minnesota soon. Yeah no more iowa he's going to mankato he's going to share yeah 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 come on he's going to mankato let's go <laughs> he'll short he'll share plenty more about that but uh, just wanted to introduce him to you guys so that you know hey we actually we brought you know we we trust him we he just didn't he didn't just show up here we actually believe in him and and thankful for the words that he's going to share with us this weekend so steven it's all yours man have fun
1: bro thank you so much Oh, guys, first and foremost, do you have an incredible salt staff team to put on this retreat for you all? Let's go. Yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and see if I can name them all, but guys, do you love Austin? Yeah. yeah. Do, you have, do you love Kaylee? Yeah. Oh, that was louder. That was louder. Do you love Abby? Oh, okay, did I get them all? Oh, no, guys, Nate is not salt staff. We are not. Owen is salt staff? Owen! Yeah! Man, we love Owen. Owen, where are you at, Owen? Just raise your hand. Hey, Owen, you're the man. You're the man. Okay, Do you guys love the tech team that put this thing on? Yeah. Okay. Now we will show some love to Papa Nate. Nate. Yes. Okay. I am so sorry, worship team. I'm going to clean up some of these papers because I'm going to slip on those. This is a crazy mask. Hey, whose team is winning? Wow. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, hey, like Austin said, we are from Cedar Falls, Iowa. Both my wife, Natalie, and I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. We both went to Iowa State, got involved with salt there. I came on staff at Salt Company at Iowa State for a few years, and then we moved up to Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I've been the Salt Company director there for the University of Northern Iowa since the fall of 2019. And like Austin said, we are about to become permanent residents of the great state of Minnesota. Let's hear it one more time. Oh, yeah. We are very excited for all the Minnesota things. Uh, I was following the score of the Minnesota Wild last night. I, like, I wasn't watching the game, but I was following the score, which, you know, baby steps. We're getting there. Uh, but hockey is going to be a thing for us. We love it already. Uh, but we can't wait to move up here. But God did an incredible work in our lives through the Salt Company, and we just have a passion for college students, a passion that there be a church engaging every single campus in the United States. There's 403 significant campuses across our country, and we want a salt company and church engaging and working at all of those so that there would never be a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior who would be able to go through their time in college without hearing the name of Jesus, without being discipled, without being... Uh, sent out to make a significant impact for his kingdom. And, And we've fallen in love with Mankato. We've fallen in love with Minnesota State. It's an incredible community, incredible campus that has a huge need for a church and for a salt company there. And I know that for so many of you, it's like every time I talk to one of you guys, it's like, hey, half of my graduating class went to Mankato, went to Minnesota State. And for a lot of you, the experiences that you've had at Salt Company, God has changed your life. And as grateful as you are for that, what you also probably are feeling is the classmates that went to the other campuses around your state. Other campuses like St. Cloud or Duluth or up in North Dakota or wherever they maybe went, but also at Minnesota State. And they didn't have a salt company. They didn't have a church that was there for them. And so we have a passion to plant churches across the country and across our state and our region, and we could not be more excited to be moving up to Mankato here in the next couple of months. So we will share plenty about that over the next couple of weeks, but one of the things that is the most compelling for us is not necessarily the rah-rah speeches or the demographic studies or all those. Those things are great and important, but it ultimately started for me when I was a freshman, 2012 at Iowa State. I showed up on Iowa State's campus and right away met Salt Company leaders in my dorm. And on Monday, the very first day of school, I went to my first connection group that night, met these guys. They were cool. We had a great time. I was loving it. But an hour later, I also attended my very first kegger, my very first college kegger. And for the next few weeks, for the next month, the first month of freshman year, I was living this duplicitous life where I was all in for Salt Company. I was signing up for things like Gospel 101 and retreats and things like that. But at the same time, on Thursday night after Salt, I was drinking. You know, on Friday night, Saturday night, that was the party scene for me. And I was living this life that was duplicitous, one foot in Salt Company and one foot in the party scene. And I remember being at my very first kickoff as a freshman on Iowa State's campus, and I was sitting there on the lawn, and our salt director, Cody Klein, he said something that I will never forget. And he said, do you know the number one time in your life that you will regret the most? He said, it will be the first two months of college for you. And I'm sitting there on this lawn, and I have this thought. I go, that is me right now. Like, I just knew vividly that this moment in my life, I was convinced, will be the number one time in my life that I regret the most and so i left that kickoff and went to a house party and the party was ruined because of that that line i couldn't even finish a beer that night and i sat there just contemplating the reality of my life and what was going on and in a few weeks i woke up one sunday morning after a weekend of partying and i was like i can't do this anymore i'm sitting in my bed after a long weekend and i was just thinking i either need to convince myself that God doesn't exist so I can continue to do whatever I want. Or I need to acknowledge that there is a God. And that if there is a God, that the only logical response is to follow him. That if the Bible is true, if God exists and he's the kind of God who would send his son to die for me, then the only logical response is to surrender my life completely to him. And so right there, the end of September freshman year, that's what happened. I called up my connection group leader, called up my dad, told him everything that had been going on. And from that moment on, I've sought to follow Jesus with my whole life. God's grace completely changed my life freshman year. And so my wife, Natalie, and I, we can't help but think of the thousands of freshmen that right now, after the first two months of college, are sitting in a dorm at Minnesota State, tired of the party scene, tired of living for themselves, but they don't have a church and they don't have a ministry that's there for them. We can't help but think about the freshmen across our nation that are in that exact same situation. And it's been our absolute privilege and joy to get to work with college students for the last decade because our story was changed while we were in college, because there was a ministry there to engage us with the gospel. And what I want to show you this weekend is that that same grace that changed our life can change your life. This weekend, I'm not going to do a bunch of rah-rah speeches or twist your arm about going on church plants, things like that. What I want to do and what I'm convinced of is if I show you the grace of God, that it will change your life, and it will change you to be the sort of person who follows Jesus. That That the most compelling thing that we could look at this weekend is God's grace. And get a greater glimpse of his life-changing eternity, changing grace through Jesus. So to do that, I want to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the story of a man named Joseph. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Thankfully, Genesis is the very first book of your Bible. So it's crazy easy to find. You're welcome. But here's something that we do a lot with characters in the Bible. Sometimes we sugarcoat their stories. Maybe you grew up in church and you heard kind of the children's version story of their life. And we kind of have this larger than life view of these characters. And we think, man, these are like the heroes of the faith. And and they are heroes, but we overlook some of the darker aspects of their story. And what we're going to see this weekend is that God displays his grace through brokenness. That Joseph, even though he had some high moments in his life, it's actually a story of profound brokenness. That he was a man who knew intense pain. He knew sin. He had committed sin. He had been sinned against. His story is a story of brokenness. And it's exactly through this story of brokenness that we are going to get a glimpse of God's grace. And that's a comfort for a lot of us, you know, that we're not just going to have this sugar-coated, rose-colored lens view of this Bible character named Joseph, but actually we're going to see his brokenness. And it's a comfort for a couple of reasons. For some of you, you are sitting in this room right now and you are literally wondering, how did I get here? Like, I have no business being in this room. Maybe you've never grew up in church and you're just like, man, I don't belong here. And you're looking around the room and it's very easy for you to begin seeing people with Bibles. And you're thinking, man, I have no business being in this room. If anyone knew what I did last weekend, they wouldn't have let me come to this retreat. Joseph's story is going to show you that God associates with broken people. But then there's some other people in this room. And maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you know the Bible stories. Maybe you followed Jesus for a while. But subtly over time... You've begun to unconsciously believe that in order for you to maintain your place in this room, you have to be perfect. You have to perform. You can't let people see the insecurities and burdens that you're secretly carrying. For all of us, we're walking into this room with baggage. We're walking into this room with burden. We're walking into this room with sins that we just can't get past. But what we're going to see in the life of Joseph this weekend is a glimpse of God's grace. That Jesus is actually offering you an invitation into his family. That his grace is powerful enough to restore and heal our brokenness. So we're going to see four areas of brokenness this weekend that God's grace is greater and can restore. The first one is going to be family brokenness. The family brokenness and burdens that we carry into this room. How can God's grace restore those burdens? So Joseph, he comes from a broken family. This isn't, like I said, a sugar-coated family story. And so we're introduced to the man Joseph in Genesis 37. Here's how he's introduced to us. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. So we're introduced to Joseph and his family. So this is teenage Joseph. He's 17 years old. He's, his dad is Jacob. We'll see him referred to as Jacob and Israel. God changes his name to Israel early, earlier in the book of Genesis. And this is his family. They're shepherds, they tend sheep, they live, they're nomadic, they live in tents. He's got 10 older brothers, he is the youngest in his family. And right away, we get a glimpse into the brokenness and fracture of this family. Right, what does it say in verse 2? It says that Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph, is out tending sheep. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report of them to their father. So teenage Joseph tattletales on his older brothers. Now, did you notice what it says? Who does it say he's working with? Right? It says he's working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. It doesn't say he's working with his brothers. It says he's working with the sons of his father's wives. What are these? These are his stepbrothers. Joseph knows what it's like to be a stepbrother. So what's going on here? Why does he have stepbrothers? Well, to understand that, you need to know a little bit of the family history of Jacob and Joseph. So you don't have to turn there, but their family story begins in Genesis 12. God looks at the brokenness in humanity, the sin of the world, and he says, I'm going to choose one family, and through this family, I'm going to bring a Messiah. I'm going to bring the Savior of the world through this family line. And he looks throughout the world, and he chooses the family of Abraham. He goes to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12 and says, hey, I'm going to bring a savior through your family to the world. And that's what he does. You can track the family lineage of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. So this family is chosen to be God's people, to usher in the Messiah. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau hate one another, Jacob the younger brother steals the birthright of his older brother Esau, Esau is so mad that he attempts to murder Jacob, Jacob flees for his life, runs to his relatives, lives there for decades, while he's working for his uncle Laban, he falls in love with Laban's youngest daughter Rachel. He goes to Laban and says, hey, can I marry your daughter, Rachel? Laban says, work for me seven years and you can marry Rachel. So Jacob does. And then on the wedding night, after seven years of working for Laban, Jacob gets so drunk that Laban is able to swap Rachel out for his older daughter, Leah. And Jacob accidentally marries Leah, sleeps with her, wakes up in the morning and is shocked. That would be a horrible night. Like, oh my goodness, like a different woman. What? What? But that's what happens. Jacob gets so drunk, he doesn't even realize he's sleeping with Leah. He goes to, Jacob, to Laban and is like, what on earth? Like, why did you do this? Well, we're told that Leah had weak eyes. And it's hard to know exactly what it means that Leah had weak eyes. It could be like she was physically disabled somehow in her eyesight. It could also mean, and I think, that she was just ugly. Like, that, that's just what it was. And so here Laban is An older sister who's ugly, a younger sister who everyone wants to marry, and he can't offload this older sister. So he gets Jacob drunk, gives him Leah. And then he says, hey, work for me another seven years, and you can also marry Rachel. So he marries Rachel, works for him another seven years. And from day one, this family starts in dysfunction. Like, imagine Leah's experience. You are the older, uglier sister married to the man who's in love with your younger, prettier sister. You're the older sister who has always felt like you're in the shadow of your younger sister, and now you're married to the same guy. And as you can imagine, a ton of conflict arises right away. Rachel is barren, she's unable to have children, but Leah is having son after son after son, and yet Jacob still doesn't love her. So Rachel sees that her older sister is having babies, so she takes matters into her own hands. She says, hey, Jacob, why don't you just sleep with my slave, Bilha, have some kids with her, and I'll claim them as my own, and then I can kind of get back at Leah. So Jacob, the idiot, sleeps with Bilhah, impregnates her. They have kids. Then Leah sees what's going on. So she goes to Jacob and says, hey, sleep with my slave, Zilpah. That, and then I'll claim them as my own. So Jacob now has four wives, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah, he's had, and Rachel, and he's had kids with three of them. Three women he doesn't love, and the one woman he does love is unable to have kids. Well, finally she conceives, and she has Joseph. And what do we learn? Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest. This is a dysfunctional family. This is a jacked up family. Jacob doesn't hide the fact that he loves Rachel, loves Joseph. And I don't even think Joseph and Rachel mind. I think Joseph likes being the favorite child. And here he is tending sheep after decades of dysfunction. 17-year-old Joseph goes and tattletales to dad about his older brothers, his older stepbrothers. And what happens? Jacob probably chews them out, takes the side of Joseph once again, and then says, Hey, I just made you a coat of many colors, showers him with gifts, while the older, unloved brothers watch on. This is a broken family. Just imagine what it had been like to be those older brothers. Your dad is physically present and yet emotionally it has abandoned you. Physically present, emotionally absent. Imagine what it'd be like to be one of those 10 older brothers knowing that your dad doesn't love your mom, he loves another woman. Imagine what it'd be like to be the stepbrother who knows that your dad's favorite child is the other child. Imagine the heartache. I mean, all these guys are in their 20s, 30s. Like, this has been going on for years. Living in this dysfunction. Dysfunction. Unfortunately, I know for some of you, it is not hard to imagine what it'd be like to be unloved by your dad. It's not hard to imagine what it'd be like to be physically present with your dad, but he be emotionally absent. This has been your story. It's not hard for you to imagine what it's like coming home from another sports game that he missed. Shallow conversations, superficial encounters, Or maybe you actually were physically abandoned by your dad. Maybe you're the stepchild and the other one is the favorite. And you've seen the difference in Christmas presents. I've been a college pastor long enough to know that there are some unthinkable, horrible stories present in this room of family brokenness. That you can do connection group warfare, you can wear the colors, you can look, the, look good on the outside, but inside you're walking into this room with burdens and baggage, hurts and pains. The failures of a father. A few years ago, uh, we had a student in Salt Company, and I... Kind of was getting to know him. He, was, uh, he attended a connection group. He came to Salt regularly. And on the outside, looked like the most normal college guy out there. He liked sports, was doing well in school. He had friends, was a part of Salt on a regular basis. On the outside, he looked completely normal. Well, one Thursday night, I just caught him afterwards, and we just started talking. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get into a conversation with someone. It's like, man, we're just talking, like, and it's a half hour. And it's just this kind of conversations happening. I asked him, hey, what are you doing over Thanksgiving break? So I'm going to go home back to Des Moines see my mom. I'm like, oh, are you going to see your dad? He's like, no, probably not. I was like, okay. Well, where's your dad? He's like, well, he's in Des Moines. I was like, oh, okay. Well, why aren't you going to see him? He's like, well, I don't, I don't really see my dad. And I was like, well, how long have your parents been divorced? He's like, 12 years. And so then I asked, well, why did they get divorced? And it turns out that this college student who looked perfectly fine on the outside when he was eight years old, witnessed his dad attempt to murder his mom. And he hadn't seen his dad since he was arrested. And I was stopped in my tracks. Like, what do you do with that story? It is gut-wrenching, but unthinkable what this individual was carrying. The burden and baggage that was unseen by all of us, but was very real to him. Now, the burden and baggage that you're walking into here, the family brokenness you've experienced, it might not be that, but you know what it's like to have a father who's failed you. You know what it's like to have divorced parents, caught in adultery, physically present but emotionally absent, missed sporting events, Empty promises. Your dad caught in a porn addiction. You know what it's like to have a father who's failed you. What do we do with the failures of our fathers? What does Joseph and his brothers do with a dad who is showing blatant favoritism? What does that college student do with the father who attempted the unthinkable? What do you do with fathers who fail you? Well, what many of us unconsciously begin to do is we begin to project our earthly father onto our heavenly father. I had a college friend uh, who actually came on the Redemption Church plant, but he confided in me one time that he's like, hey, you know what? Whenever we sing songs about God being our father, those are really hard worship songs for me. And the reason was his dad had failed him over and over again. And he had subtly begun to project the failures of his earthly father onto his heavenly father. For some of you, the biggest barrier in your relationship with God is not the proofs of the resurrection. It's not the, trustworthy of the trustworthiness of the Bible. It's not being convinced of who Jesus was. Your biggest barrier in your relationship to God is the failures of your earthly father and how you're projecting them on God the father. You see, you have a hard time trusting the promises of God because you've never been able to trust the promises of your dad. You have a hard time thinking that God is interested in somebody like you because you've never felt like your dad was interested in you. You have a hard time believing that God accepts you just as you are because you have never been able to live up to the expectations of your father. The grade reports were never enough. The sports accomplishments were never enough. You were always compared and you never met the expectations. So you think, I will never be able to meet the expectations of God the Father. So many of us, as we experience failure from our Father, we begin to project those on our Heavenly Father. Now, this sounds so obvious, but I want to say it God is not your dad. don't project the failures of your father on God the father. You see, God knows the brokenness that you carry. He knows the failures that you've experienced, the pain and the baggage and the burdens that you walk into this room with. And God the father, he sees you, he knows you, he loves you. You have significance and approval in his eyes. And he didn't just look at your situation and say, try harder or pull yourself up out of the mud. No, he said, I'm going to come for you. I'm going to be the father who sacrifices his son so that you can have healing and restoration through my grace. So God sent his son to go to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus, the son of God, was abandoned by his father so that you could be adopted by him. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned by his father. And he experienced that so that you could experience grace and healing and restoration from the family brokenness that you walk into this room with. God is the perfect loving father that you were created to have. And when you realize the grace and restoration that you could have in him, it will give you the resources to navigate the failures of your earthly father. You can trust his promises are true and trustworthy. Why? Because he proved it 2,000 years ago by going to a cross. God is offering you grace and restoration. What do we do with the failures of fathers? We look to the true heavenly father who's perfect and loving, whose promises are sure, and he proved it by going to a cross. Now, as you can imagine, the brokenness within this family isn't just between Jacob and his sons, but it's also between his sons and one another. Look at verse 5. Here's what is going on with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph comes to them and he says, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him, are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his fathers and brothers and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you've had? He said, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. What's going on here? Well, these are true prophetic dreams that Joseph is having. We're going to see throughout his stories that this is what happens. We'll see that these dreams come true, but here's what I think is going on. It's a little hard to know what is behind Joseph's heart, but here's my take on the scenario. I think Joseph knows that these dreams will get under his brother's skin. I think he knows that this is going to piss them off. It's like what happened in our house a few weeks ago. So we have four kids. They are all here. They're all sleeping in Hawk Cabin. Let's go, Hawks. Uh, It's a party up there. The salt staff's about to learn. Uh, Austin, you're getting woken up so much tonight. We have a five-month-old, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old. We brought bikes. We are going to rule this camp this weekend. It is going to be a party. Yeah, they're they're a blast. You'll see them tomorrow. Um, So my four year old son Jack, he did what I think Joseph is doing here. Uh, Our infant Jace was swaddled in our daughter Isla's favorite blankie, and while he was swaddled, he blew out. That is when he just poops so much that it squirts out everywhere, and it is disgusting. And uh, Natalie came home from work this morning, and I told her, I was like, hey, great morning. Jace only blew out once. Like, it is a regular thing that happens. Just cleaning up poop. That's a dad's life right there. So, Jace blows out in Isla's favorite blankie. Jack, as soon as Isla walks through the door, he goes, hey, Isla. Jace blew out in your blankie. Isla, the sweetest, like, she is such a sweetheart. You will all see it tomorrow. Immediately breaks down sobbing. And I go, Jack, why would you say that to Isla? You knew that it would upset her. And he has this like sly smirk on his face. And I'm like, go to your room, you know? So is what Jack's saying, is that true? Yes, it's true. Did we want Isla to know? Yes, we were going to tell her, but in a gentle way at the right time, all of that. But what is Jack doing? He's saying something that's true, but he knew that it was going to get under her skin, I think that's what Joseph's doing. I might be wrong, but that's how I see this. I think Joseph knows exactly what he's doing to his brothers. He's getting under his skin. So what's the result? Well, look at verse 12. We're going to read the entire chapter, the rest of it, all the way to verse 36 here. Here's what happens. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent them to the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. A man found him there, wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal. And when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit, And sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt. To Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards. Just think for a moment about how horrific this story is. Right? If you have a children's book memory of this story, it's really easy to just nonchalantly think, oh yeah, Joseph's brothers tried to kill him, but then they decided to sell him to slavery, like and move on. It's like, no, like stop. Think about how horrific and wicked this story is. His brothers see Joseph in the distance, and their heart is so full of hatred just at the sight of him. They say, Let's kill him. Then they throw him into a pit, and then they decide, Well, we're not going to get anything out of killing him. Let's actually sell him into a life of slavery. I mean, picture, like, Joseph's reaction in this moment. Like, try to picture what Joseph would have been doing in this moment. It's not like he's like, hey, brothers, what's up? Oh, you want to kill me? All right. Oh, you want to throw me in this pit? All right. Oh, you want to sell me? All right. It's like, no. Like, he would have been crying and pleading. Brothers, have mercy on me. No, I'm begging you. And what are his brothers doing? Well, Joseph is crying in a pit. They are having a meal. Like imagine how hard your heart has to be, how cold and callous it has to be to hear your youngest brother in a pit crying out to you in between bites. These are wicked men who committed a wicked sin against their brother. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver and then convince their dad that he was Attacked by a vicious animal. This is horrific. This is a broken family. And at this point in the story, I think all of us are starting to wonder the same thing. How could this be the family that God chose? How could this murderous rivalries gloating, backstabbing family, be the family that is going to usher in the savior of the world, right? Like what, would, like what was the family that you'd expect Jesus to come from? Well, he's the perfect son of God, probably a really great family, but this is the family, a family with rivalries, rivalries between wives, a family with a drunkard for a dad, A family with murderous brothers who want to kill the youngest. A family with a prideful Joseph, gloating in his robe of many colors. Like, this is the family. Why would God choose this family? The reason is that so you and I would know that to qualify for the family of God, it's not based on who you are or where you've come from, but it's based on his grace. God chose this family to display his grace so that you would know that God associates with the broken. So that you would know that Jesus has room for people coming from broken families because he came from a broken family. So that you would know that whatever baggage, burdens, and brokenness you carried into this room, his grace is greater. His grace can redeem any family situation. His grace can restore any wounds that you walk into this room with. This is why he chooses this family. So that they would be a display of his grace. So that we would never wonder, am I the sort of person that God would have in his family? Am I the sort of person that can belong to the family of God? Because what I've experienced, what I've done, the sins I've committed, the sins that have been committed against me, I don't know. But this story proves beyond a shadow of doubt that God can use anyone from any family and they can be a part of his family because of his grace. Now, how could that be possible? How could God redeem this family? How could Jesus redeem your family brokenness? Well, the only way is if, the, if his family, his perfect eternal family was broken. You see, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have been eternally delighting in one another for all of all of their existence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit united in one, one God, three persons for all eternity. And it was that family that was broken 2,000 years ago on the cross so that our broken families could be healed. You see, for the first time in God's existence, His family was fractured when Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, you've abandoned me. Jesus was abandoned so that you could be adopted. Jesus experienced the cross so that you could experience his grace and healing. That's how Jesus could redeem this family, and that's the redemption that Jesus is promising yours. No matter who you are, what you've done, or where you come from, Jesus is offering you his restoring redeeming grace that his grace is greater than your brokenness that his grace has the power to heal your family wounds and that his grace is giving you an opportunity you see if brokenness has marked your family if that's the reputation of your family Jesus's grace is actually offering you the opportunity to be the turning point for your family you see, my family, I am incre- I, in all honesty, I'm incredibly blessed. My, I have great parents. I have great brothers. Like, we have a really healthy family. But the Jones family, that is, hasn't always been our story. Five generations ago, my great-great-grandfather was in a POW camp in the Civil War. He survived that only to go get drunk at a bar, fall off his horse in the middle of winter, almost freeze to death, Only to survive that, to catch pneumonia from that night and die two weeks later. He was a drunkard, a vile man, and our family for generations had had been godless. Well, his son, my great-grandfather Gordon, moved to El Dorado, Arkansas, was married in his 40s, had three teenage kids. And one day, a church planter named Brother Sam knocked on his door. Brother Sam moved onto Maribel Hill Road 74 years ago and knocked on Gordon Jones' door and began meeting with Gordon and Lois in a Bible study weekly. And over the course of weeks, Brother Sam led Gordon to Christ. And then our entire family followed. My grandfather, Delmas Jones, put his faith in Christ as a teenager. And this small Bible study that I'd been meeting started a church that is known as Marable Hill Chapel. It's the chapel where my grandparents were married. It's the chapel, they were married by Brother Sam. It's the chapel where my grandma's funeral was, also officiated by Brother Sam. My family changed 74 years ago because Gordon Jones looked at the pattern of godlessness and brokenness that had marked our family. And he said, by Jesus' grace, I will be the turning point. The trajectory of my family is going to change starting with this generation. And now for five generations, Joneses have followed the Lord. All because a group of church planters decided to move to Marable Hill Chapel or Marrable Hill Road and begin knocking on doors. You can be the turning point generation for your family. Maybe your family has a reputation of brokenness and godlessness, but that can change with you. Not because you are great and not because you have the ability, but because Jesus' grace is greater than your brokenness. And our prayer is that 74 years from now, there would be great-great-grandsons and great-great-granddaughters who would say, my grandma went to a fall retreat at Camp Victory back in 2023, and our family was changed forever. And that there would be people who said, there was a group of church planters who decided to move to Mankato, and our family was forever changed when they knocked on my great-great-grandfather's door. God's grace is offering you healing, restoration, and opportunity for your family brokenness. God displays his grace through our brokenness. Let's pray. God, I can only imagine the burdens and baggage that we are wrestling with right now as we have meditated on this story and seen this glimpse of a family that was fractured and dysfunctional. But God, would we see the hope that is in you for our dysfunctional and fractured families? Would we see the healing that is in your hands for the wounds that we have received from our family? God, would we see the forgiveness that we are offered for the wounds that we have caused within our families? Would we see a picture of grace in the family of Joseph? That though they were fractured and broken and jacked up, you chose to use them to display your grace. God, would we allow your grace to be displayed in our lives? God, would we come to you knowing that you can handle our brokenness, our pain, our sin? And God, would we receive grace and healing in your arms? God, thank you for Christ, that he went to the cross, that he was abandoned by you so that we could be adopted, that he experienced the pain of sin so that we could be healed from it, and that he took on the wounds of our brokenness so that we could have the hope of healing. Lord, would you use us to be the turning point of generations to come as we experience your grace and are overwhelmed by it? Amen.